Hilda. Thanks for joining me on the uh, podcast today. The psychology of politics. The other day I uh, introduced a number of topics on this general theme of the psychology of politics. And I'd like to continue that uh, today as uh, we've had good response and people seem to be interested in this particular uh, dynamic that's going on in our country today. And there's an uprising in a number of issues that uh, are threatening and attempting to change the face of America uh, today. What I'd like to do now is uh, kind of extend that conversation. If you didn't hear it, by the way, in part one, um, go back about two days and pick up the podcast, and you'll see the psychology of politics and a number of topics that I covered there that might be of considerable interest uh, to you. Uh, We looked at gun control, and we looked at homelessness, And uh, we looked at the Black Lives Matter situation and defunding the police and some of those issues that are facing America today. So pick up the podcast from a couple days ago, and now let's pick up the uh, next part of it, or the extension of it. And I'd like to take a look at this issue of socialism. Now, without going through all the definitions of socialism, uh, let me just kind of basically say that it's this extreme end of of the Democratic Party. It's the far left, the more liberal end of the Democratic Party. So the Democratic Party obviously has a range of beliefs and behavior patterns and voting patterns and uh, opinions that stretch from somewhat conservative to being very, 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 very liberal. And it's that very liberal end when we talk about socialism. There's a great distinction between people who are in power, who have all the money and have all the opportunities And the people who are at the low end of the financial totem pole have little opportunity and are treated in the form of handouts and uh, live on crumbs and handouts of the political party that's ruling. So socialism is a very um, complex issue to, to study and to understand it, but it is the welfare state. Uh, that we are, you know, kind of looking at. And uh, people who are basically in the belief system that the government is to be in control, is to have all the funds and to have all the power, have all the decision-making, and to give out funds and to tax people who are rich and tax people who are working and tax people who have moderate incomes and take that money and give it to people who are not working and even who those who could be working. So socialism is a um, threat to democracy, and it's a threat to our lifestyle. Now, you know what's happening? We're seeing a growth. We're seeing an increased amount of socialism among our university students and our young people. You know what? In the last two years, from 2018 to now, 2020, um, we have seen the socialist uh, movement in the political world double. In other words, there's support for socialism twice as much now as there was in 2018. In a poll uh, taken in 2019, 70% of the millennials, these are kids who are 22 to 37, 70% of that population say that they're likely to vote for a socialist. So that was Bernie Sanders. And uh, a number of candidates that uh, aligned themselves with him, some less so, and others quite a bit, but that socialism movement is strong within the government, 
and it has attracted the attention of students that are 22 to 37. These are post-college students. So you can see within the university context that they had been influenced by in the previous four years or so, there is a socialism mindset that has been created and that now prevails in our streets and it prevails in our schools by the teachers and prevails in our medical system through the doctors and prevails throughout the business world and so on. The idea that somehow there's a group of people that should be cared for but not educated and advanced in their own self-help, in their own self-care. It's a population of people who question the Declaration of Independence and give a little bit more importance to the communist manifesto as a way to create goodwill and create equity and create advancement of a society. So you see, socialism has a root, and the root is deepening, and the root is strengthening, and it's strengthening through our educational system, primarily through our university system. You know, this was very uh, pronounced, and we saw this in a very pronounced way. When a survey was done, 12,000 university college professors who made political donations, 12,000 political professors, I mean, uh, university professors made political donations in the year 2019-2020, leading up to our last election. 98%, 99% of them gave money to the Democratic candidate. 1% gave money to the conservative candidate. So the, pro the professor pool is Democratic. The professor pool lines itself with that spectrum of moderate, democ uh, moderate, moderate democracy and be a moderate Democrat to being a very extreme leftist, leaning in the direction of socialism. So you can see that's where the university influence comes upon students who are going to school uh, these days. Now, in contrast to the um, socialist population of students, if you will, there's a group of students known as the conservative students. And uh, if you compare them and contrast them to students who are less conservative, in other words, they're liberal, and they line themselves up on the liberal side, there are considerable differences between these two populations of people. A report from the University of North Carolina that was published just last March found that 50% of students with conservative views versus 12% of students with liberal views worry that the professor will change their opinion of them if the professor knew their political position. In other words, if the professor knew that that was a conservative student, that professor would change his view of the student and probably affect the, the grade of that particular student. In other words, conservative students are afraid to be known as conservative in the university setting. And they're, fear they're fearful of professors who will somehow work against them and derate them if they knew that they were conservative. Now, this came after another study uh, by the National Association of Scholars, and that was the group that found that university professors primarily are democratic in their voting, and they certainly are democratic in their gift-giving of money to political causes and to political candidates. Now, peer-to-peer -peer polarization is more significant as we kind of look forward in our world today. And um, students are considerably more tolerant uh, towards different views if they're conservative. Liberal students are not particularly conservative, are not particularly tolerant, not particularly tolerant of students who are conservative. So you see there's a great difference 
Conservative students have a tolerance. Liberal students have an intolerance for those who are different from themselves. So that was a major, major change uh, over the last number of years. That number has been changing and likely to continue to change. 23% of liberal students and only 3% of conservative students say that they are not willing to be friends with somebody of the opposite point of view. Can you imagine that? Conservative students are tolerant. Conservative students are willing to meet people who are different from themselves, have a different point of view than themselves, even political points of view. But liberal students are not. Liberal students stay in the liberal camp. Liberal students don't want to make friendships. They don't want to talk to. They don't want to associate with people who are different from themselves, mainly the conservative population of students. So you see, this whole issue of conservatism is significantly different from socialism. Socialism isolates. Socialism restricts. Socialism criticizes. Socialism puts down those who are different, threatens those who are different. Conservative students, conservative points of view, are much more tolerant, much more open, much more willing to dialogue, much more willing to discuss, but yet are afraid of professors who will change their point of view and somehow work against them in the classroom if they knew that that student was conservative. So conservative students have a fear. They live with an anxiety that somehow they're going to be picked on. They're going to be isolated out and um, berated for their point of view. Now, the other day in my um, discussions on um, politics going on today, I introduced the idea of licensing and payment, that we have it kind of wrong. We have it right when it comes to the DMV. You have to get a license to drive. You don't have to get a license to own a car or to buy a car. You don't have to have a license for that. You need an ID, by the way, but you don't need a license. You need a license to drive. So I made the point, the same thing when it comes to alcohol. It isn't that we need a license to buy alcohol. You need a license to drink alcohol. And a license should be based on certain criteria. You do not have a history of alcoholism in your family. You do not have a history of violence in your own personal life. You don't have a personality pattern that's addictive. You don't have a family history that's addictive to alcohol. You don't have a violent, and there needs to be some kind of a psychological evaluation as to your ability to drink without becoming addicted and without misusing alcohol. So the licenses should not be on the buying. It should be on the using of alcohol in the same way that we have on driving. It's not on the buying of a car, but it's on the using of a car, which you call driving a car. So I think when it comes to voting, it's the same thing. We need a license to vote. Call that the idea, the ID. If you're going to vote, you should have a license. If you don't want to vote, that's okay. You don't have to have a license then. Same way with a car. If you don't want to drive, you don't have to have a license. So that's up to you. But if you're going to vote, you got to have a license you know, to do that. So it's that idea that let's, let's recognize the use of these kind of subjects, even guns for that matter. The use of them, not you have a license to buy a gun, you need a license to use a gun. And it's the same way with a car. If you don't have a license to buy a car, you have to have a license to use the car. So if we begin to think differently when it comes to licensing, I think it would be much more helpful and it would control and would moderate some of the abuses that we see now in our social system of voting and gun use and uh, driving and accidents and drinking and drug use and all the rest. The license should be placed on the use of, not the purchase of, or the ownership of, or the buying of. It should be based on the use of. And if we do that, I think we have a much better chance of bringing the things under control. So there you are. Give us some thought to that. Have some conversation about that. 
bring that up with your friends. Give some thought to that and how that might impact you and might impact our society and it might impact the world in which we live and the communities in which we live. See if that makes sense. And maybe we can move in that direction of recognizing that we need to have standards and the standards need to be based upon the behavior patterns, the use of an object, not just the ownership of. Okay, nice to have you with me and thanks for now and 